0: Hi. Hello. Is this good?
1: Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm Tori Wells, and in this episode, we will be talking about supercomputing. I'm joined by John Kolb, the Vice President of Information Services and Technology and Chief Information Officer at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute.
2: It's all right, Tori. The President says my title's too long, too, but hello.
1: And Chris Crothers, the director of the Center for Computational Innovations, also at Rensselaer. Hello. Thank you both for being here today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I was hoping we could start with a very basic question. What is a supercomputer?
2: So, so I'll take the first crack on that, Tori. Um, uh, I think supercomputing is generally uh, refers to a class of machines that are are bigger, uh, faster than, if you will, your normal computers. Uh, Back in the workstation era that uh, Chris and I grew up in, we used to talk about a MIP machine a million instructions per second, uh, M-I-P-S. Nowadays, we're looking at the flops of a machine, the floating point operations per second, and then how many of those do you have? The largest machines in the world are on the order of about 100 petaflops, and peta is quadrillion. Our machine is about eight petaflops and puts us in the top 25 systems in the world. So we can do essentially eight quadrillion floating-point operations or calculations per second. And one of the ways to think about that and put it in perspective is if there's on the order of about seven or eight billion people in the world, um, eight quadrillion divided by seven, eight billion is a million calculations per person in the world per second.
1: It's pretty impressive. And let me take a step back, and we should acknowledge that Rensselaer has a really impressive supercomputer, as you just mentioned, called Amos. And for listeners, that's spelled A-I-M-O-S. So that's a nod to AI, artificial intelligence. So talk to me a little bit about how impressive – you you just touched on this, but how impressive this computer is compared to other supercomputers.
2: Well, it's uh, by far the number one private university system in the country. Um, uh, There are a couple of public institutions uh, that uh, are there also, um, but uh, this is the only private institution that's at uh, this level and can provide this kind of uh, computing computation resource uh, for the things that we're doing. Uh, I think that's pretty impressive when you think about the caliber of the universities in this country and across the world. Um, And as Chris often points out to me, it's not just the the calculations and computations, but also uh, how green it is. We're number three on the the top green list. Uh, So we're being very, very frugal and efficient with the amount of energy we're putting in for the calculations we're getting out.
1: Chris, do you want to talk about the acronym at all? There's a nice history and story behind that.
0: Sure. So we pronounce the name of the machine Amos, but that owes back to the first founding professor here at Rensselaer, Amos Eaton. And, of course, we've spelled it. We've put the I in there owing to the fact it's part of the AI Hardware Center, uh, the collaboration which we'll talk a little bit more about with IBM in New York State. So we have the AI part, we have AMOS, going back to the very first professor, and then also MOS stands for Metal Oxide Semiconductor. So it's not just about advancing AI per se, but it's advancing the hardware that will be developed and used that will accelerate this class of calculation as well as uh, traditional high-performance computing applications in the future as well.
1: So you mentioned the Hardware Center. Can you talk a little bit about how this relates to the IBM Research AI Hardware Center and what is the significance of that center?
0: So uh, this center is really a multi-billion dollar uh, program that was initiated uh, in part by IBM and New York State uh, in the large, uh, and Rensselaer is a partner as well in this effort. Um, part of that is for the development of new uh, AI accelerating hardware, but to see that goal, they needed a testbed. And that is what Amos is. It is the mm-hmm. test bed by which companies can come in test out uh, new AI algorithms, um, and then we'll see how they perform on Amos, and then that will drive the development of new hardware, which will be fabricated over in the fab side of this at SUNY Polytechnic, and then that hardware, once fabricated, can come back and be uh, uh, actually fielded and tested live in the testbed facility, and really closing the cycle on this uh, exciting innovation and development.
1: So, this is an important step for the future beyond Rensselaer.
2: Uh, Absolutely.
1: Why does it make sense to situate a machine like this at a a higher education institution?
2: Well, if you look at Rensselaer, uh, Tori, uh, we t- we talk about the four P's. We talk about people, programs, partnerships, and platforms. And uh, certainly Chris just touched on the partnership piece with IBM and New York State. Uh, if you look at uh, the people and programs here, we have some of the best minds uh, in the country at Rensselaer on our faculty uh, as grad students, as undergraduate students. Uh, And uh, the programs that we have in artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, computation, uh, neuromorphic, uh, you know, keep going right down the the whole line of things. Uh, It's a very, very broad and rich set of programs. But to to really amplify all that, you need a platform that you can leverage. And the platform is Amos. And uh, this is, by far, uh, one of the best test speds period in the world. Uh, and Chris and I were just talking before we came in to chat with you that uh, some of the other folks are standing up platforms that don't even come close to the types of not only the calculational calculations, computational power, but um, the uh, variety of things that we can do with the graphics processing units as well as the system itself. so uh, it's it's impressive.
1: You mentioned the programs, the students, the researchers. What does having access to a supercomputer like this that can perform at such high speeds and capacity, what is that enabling for researchers here at Rensselaer that they couldn't do before?
0: So I think you end up answering sort of two aspects to the question. One is it takes what a researcher might spend a month doing and can compress it down to a coffee break. So... They could spend a month computing something and we'll turn it into a coffee break. That's significant in and of itself. But then the other piece of it is, is there are data sets out there that are just too large to do on standard laboratory uh, computing uh, platforms. AMOS allows those to be computed with ease. And so you're really taking the impossible and making it possible. And so those two things really come together to provide a rich ecosystem of just scientific discovery across really all areas of of engineering and science, technology, as well as humanities. Um, And so having the polytechnic uh, programs that we have here, we're really sort of ground zero for bringing all of these things together and creating all of these future discoveries that are gonna have a tremendous impact across everybody's life.
2: Yeah, when I when I uh, think of this uh, question, Tori, I, I typically look at the problems are either really, really large or really, really small. So if you're at the atom level or subatomic level, um, you're trying to keep track of a zillion atoms at the same time to do any sort of simulations. Just uh, incredibly complex, how do we sim- simulate that? And by uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're trying to look out into the universe and look at all the stars and all the planets and all the galaxies all at the same time, how do you do that? To Chris's point, the data sets are large in either case and the amount of uh, calculations are large in either case. So you need a machine that can move data and do calculations on data and make it a coffee break as opposed to uh, all day.
1: It's a good way to explain it. Um, What about for the students? We know obviously there are graduate level students that are probably using this machine. But what about undergraduate students? Because I would imagine that would be an incredibly unique opportunity.
0: Oh, absolutely. So um, I'm actually teaching a course in parallel computing and 60% of the class, so probably 70 students or 80 students are all undergraduates. They're usually junior to senior. um, And they very much uh, enjoy getting on in uh, learning about and how, to, you know, and how to use a supercomputer. And it has a really profound impact on them in terms of the type of job that they're able to go get upon graduation. And that's at the undergraduate level um, and as well as at the graduate level. So for example, students are going to obviously places like Google, um, but they also end up at the Department of Energy National Labs. So uh, they can go in transition directly from Rensselaer and have the uh, immediately Uh, joining groups and having an impact because they already understand how to program and run jobs on uh, really leadership class supercomputing systems Um, and then often they get picked up and go to other places I have had one of my students leave the Department of Energy Labs and go to Amazon so and that's sort of another piece of this is that you know high-performance computing cloud it's all coming together um, and we're really the place that's sort of starting to make that happen
2: and, Tori, just to build on that, um, that's an elective course, that uh, uh, Professor Carruthers is talking about. And I've heard he's a really tough professor, too, but he's still getting 80 people to come and want to do this and so on of our undergraduates. And
0: to John's point, absolutely. They, they're, the students uh, are willing to do the hard work necessary to uh, get these programs to scale. Uh, and, and they're just excited by... Uh, The extreme time compression we were mentioning earlier, it's really exciting to see students like, wow, my program ran in only a minute, and it used to take hours. Um, So they're really driven by the prospects of what this platform offers them.
1: They recognize the opportunity. Oh, right. Absolutely. We talk a lot about grand challenges and global challenges here at Rensselaer, and more importantly, how do we solve those challenges? What role can this supercomputer play in finding or enabling those solutions more importantly, how could this computer improve people's lives?
0: Um, I think, well, there's a, there's the whole range of disciplines that it's going to, to solve. But the big one, I think, from the National Academy of Engineering's grand challenges that really strikes to both John and I, and we've sort of talked about this, is sort of our ability to build the new tools that are going to be enablers for scientific discovery, and that's really across the gamut from, say, uh, you know, mechanical engineering, nuclear engineering, electrical engineering, material science and engineering, uh, physics, uh, uh, even you know, pure mathematics. All of these areas are going to have a tremendous uh, 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 enabling capability by using AMOS. Uh, to facilitate and advance their research programs. Um, and we've had a long track record of doing these types of things um, in scientific and uh, uh, com- scientific and, and, and computational engineering. Uh, for example, in meshing for uh, uh, advanced airflow designs for turbines um, is just one aspect. In my own area of research, we've been able to dramatically improve the performance of discrete event simulations that are really models of future supercomputer systems. So all of these areas are really gonna be dramatically improved by this system.
1: So would it be fair to say it's, on, it's touching on all of the uh, areas that people are studying here at Rensselaer, human health, the environment, um, you talk about um, Absolutely. improved all, materials.
0: Yeah, uh, anything and everything that uses a computer AMOS will pretty much advance. And actually, that's one of the new features of it from past supercomputers is that this system will really run just about any software, more or less, where prior supercomputers, they were limited. Uh, They couldn't run the software that people wanted to run on their desktops. And now it's much more able through uh, some innovations that IBM has done. In particular, IBM now owns Red Hat, which is the premier enterprise Linux uh, distribution. So, if your software runs on Red Hat, which a lot of it does, it runs on Amos, and that's really a dramatic change that we've we've seen. And so, as a, as a director, I now say I have to say yes, but let me get back to you on how to do that, as opposed to no, that software won't run. And so, we're we're seeing a much richer ecosystem of 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 types of software applications that can be supported on this system.
2: Uh, and you know, Tori, I. Uh... I thought it was very interesting when I looked at the National Academy of Engineering's list of, they had like a dozen uh, grand challenges. Um, But the paragraph in front of that, that described these at a very high level, there were four words that they used, sustainability, health, security, and it's not a word, but a phrase, joy of living. And the last one really struck me, joy of living. And and certainly we've always worked on sustainability, sustainability of the environment, sustainability of energy sources, sustainability of of all the things that we do. Uh, health is a big issue with our biotechnology center and a number of things that uh, dovetail back into the supercomputer. Security, cybersecurity, physical security, and so on is a huge part of what we we do here at Rensselaer. But then the joy of living one just struck me as, you know, when we talk about the built environment or uh, these large urban centers that are are growing up and need new uh, solutions for them, uh, and the kind of simulations we can do on a system like this that you couldn't do before, actually, believe it or not, contributes to the joy of living too, which I think is very cool.
1: I like that, that's really great. Another way you might you talk about the joy of living, another way that we could talk about this improving lives is right here in the capital region, and that's through economic development. Can you speak to what a machine like Amos can do in that regard?
2: Well, let me take a quick crack at that and ask uh, Chris to do a deeper dive. But uh, when you look at the economic ecosystem of uh, the Troy, Schenectady, Albany, Saratoga region, Uh, There's an awful lot of small companies, a lot of really good tech companies, a lot of great gaming companies that have come out of Rensselaer, but uh, small manufacturing companies, other things. Uh, and a lot of times, that these companies don't have the resources to be able to do a simulation or some modeling on a supercomputer. They have an interesting problem, but they can't get access. And this is a place where I think we can help. And we have helped over the last uh, two generations of supercomputers, and you might want to give an example of that, Chris.
0: Sure. So, um, in the past, we've worked with, as John was saying, a number of small in some cases medium-sized companies now uh, that just didn't have access to the level of supercomputing that we do. And one in particular was uh, Gould pumps. And so we were able to um, do an engineering design analysis for them using our prior supercomputer that ultimately changed the uh, way they thought about designing their pumps and were able to eliminate a significant amount of the weight and uh, essentially I guess they would call that more swap size weight and power. of the overall pump design, and uh, it was largely due to the fact of the computational horsepower of these supercomputer systems. So one of the mistakes that people make around these things is is they want to treat computers like pencils. They're like a, a commodity resource. But when you start looking at supercomputing, what it really is is it's a platform for innovation. You can just design things in a way that you never thought possible. It allows you to do what we do every day here at Rensselaer is ask that key question. You know, let's change the world, and what if? Um, and so this
2: really speaks to, to that capability. Actually, just to build on a little bit on the gold pump piece too, this company's been around forever in New York State. Like, it has over a hundred year history, and their first material for making pumps was wood. <laughs> And so they evolved from wood to their current pumps, and they're a very successful company. But um, sometimes that legacy hangs on, and you need a a disruptive uh, set of of tools like what a supercomputer brings to the table to think differently about, okay, maybe it's uh, this or that that we have to do differently going forward to get better efficiencies out of this, uh, lower costs, better materials, whatever.
1: Would you say it's uncovering things or ideas that people hadn't thought of before?
2: It it can certainly lead to that. And uh, some of those simulations in that company in particular absolutely led to different ways of looking at it.
1: That's wonderful. You mentioned that this is not the Institute's first supercomputer. Um, Rensselaer is lucky to have had others in the past as well. Looking back, the technology has improved very quickly and it's really interesting when you can physically show that to people. Um, Can you talk about that progression and kind of describe the change?
2: Well, let me take the first crack and then Chris can once again go a little deeper, but um, we put the first uh, sort of modern generation of supercomputers in place here in 2007. It was 100 teraflops. So a tera, tera is one one-thousandth of a peta, which I mentioned earlier. So it was 100 trillion calculations per, per second. Yeah, just 100 trillion. Uh, so so old, old 2007, right? Um, and we've been on this wonderful march of, in 2013, we went to about one petaflop, uh, which is one quadrillion calculations. And now we're pretty close to 10 petaflops at about eight uh, plus. And so what's interesting is every six years for three data points, we've now gone up in order of magnitude in the the speed of the machine. And that in itself is impressive, but the things that Chris talked about before, uh, the way we can move data, the the more ubiquitous the operating system is and the applications tools are, this isn't just something the hide in the corner and and some small group works on. This is now sort of mainstream, if you will, that we can get many more people uh, active on this sort of thing. So, Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. Um, thanks, John. Great description. Uh, to, to amplify on that, to put it in perspective, you mentioned the size. so. One rack of our first system, a Blue Gene L, was you know it would barely fit in our podcast room here. Um, whereas now all of that compute power in one rack was is compressed down into a space that's about half the size of your iPhone. Wow. That's and then you tack on 50 percent more compute. So essentially, one rack of our first supercomputer, the Blue Gene L, was like 5.6 trillion operations or floating point operations per second. One of the graphic processors on Amos on one compute node, and there's six on a compute node, but one of those is 7.5, 7.6 teraflops. And that's about even maybe one-third the size of your iPhone, actually. So that's just, in 15 years, we've gone from rack scale to sub-iPhone scale. um, And that's the rate of growth that we've seen with these types of systems. Um, Now, a challenge in terms of using these systems has been, we have not necessarily seen the same increase in storage. And so that's made, I'd say, the programming challenge is much harder for these systems. Um, but in terms of the performance and, as John was saying, I'm saying the applications, uh, that demand and drive is still very much there. It just changes the way that we have to write our software, uh, which keeps it interesting for us every day.
2: So, Chris, how many GPUs are on Amos? Uh, 1512
0: of those <laughs> GPUs. So every one of those GPUs. so. Um, and that's roughly nearly of, of the lion's share of the compute. So it's nearly 11-plus um, petaflops peak uh, available on Amos. And there are Linpack performance, which is below that, so we get a percentage of that roughly around close to 70% of that. So that's where we come in at about eight, eight petaflops.
1: And when you're talking about how quickly technology is advancing, can you explain or can you talk about how difficult it is to stay on the cutting edge of technology
2: Uh, It's incredibly uh, um, hard. And uh, I remember a a number of years ago, I went looking for a quote about uh, the only constant in our business is change, and thinking that it was probably one of the early pioneers in computing, like a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs or such. And it turns out it was a a Greek philosopher of like 450 BC. And um, if you're not willing to accept change as the only constant in your life, then you probably don't want to be in the IT business and you certainly don't want to be in the supercomputing business because things will change and that's the excitement of it. How do you keep driving that change in a, in a meaningful way? Not change for t- change sake, but change to really uh, push the boundaries here.
0: Absolutely. And to, to add to that, we've been very fortunate and we've had very strong partnerships, especially with IBM, which has been one of the key innovators of high-performance computing technologies, as well as the Department of Energy, which is one of the key um, government agencies that's really leading the development of of supercomputing. Um, And between those two, New York State and other uh, agencies, we're leveraging their developments, but also they're leveraging the developments that we do here. And so we're always staying at the forefront So it's not as bad as maybe it sounds. Uh, We're just riding the wave and creating the next wave and going with the flow.
1: What did I not ask you that you are excited about when it comes to this supercomputer or supercomputing in general?
2: Well, uh, from my perspective, uh, let me throw out a couple things. Uh, One is, uh, I think as a, a premier technological university the the new polytechnic it's great to stand up and say and we have some of the best tools best platforms out there period uh, and um, and obviously, we have the people that know how to take it to a different level, do some things with it, and so on. And, and that's just exciting. Uh, Chris and I get to do some enabling pieces here. But a lot of our colleagues come in, and then they they say, well, this is great, or this is great. Uh, in fact, we had IBM colleagues come to us and say, we don't have a tool like this inside IBM, and we're excited to use your system here at Rensselaer. So that's exciting for us, as, uh, because that's where we should be as the, at the university is really pushing that boundary and getting other people excited. Um, The other thing which is kind of interesting, I'm uh, a lifelong uh, resident of the capital region here, and sometimes we don't always think of ourselves as in the forefront here in the the Albany, Troy, Schenectady, Saratoga areas, Um, and it's got to be, I don't know, Silicon Valley or uh, Texas or Northern Virginia or New York or Boston, and this is the most powerful system in a private university in the country this is the place you want to come to to really learn from a person like uh, professor caruthers of how do you get to the next generation of supercomputing that's exciting
0: absolutely and i guess to, to add on to that in a little more specific sense, we're sort of at the ground zero if you will of the changes happening in computing across the board and probably you know when we thought of traditional high performance computing, we were talking about running single jobs, maybe at a very large scale. And now that's being really challenged a bit in terms of, well, we want to run whole workflows of jobs. We also want to be able to allow our high performance computers to look more like cloud systems. And then how do we you know, bring the cloud and high performance computing together um, across this broad set of applications. I think those are some really key and interesting challenging problems and we are extremely well positioned at Rensselaer given the broad base of computer science capabilities, uh, computational science engineering capabilities, um, math, statistics, you know, all areas of science and engineering here. We're really uh, well positioned to solve these problems and many others um, as we go forward.
1: Well, the possibilities and imagining all of the possibilities is just really exciting. And I appreciate the time that you both took today to to share all of this with us. The Why Not Change the World podcast is recorded in the Soloist Suite at MPAC, the Curtis R. Preem Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thank you to the MPAC staff for their assistance.
0: And if you're hearing this, thank you for listening.